You are listening to The North Podcast, a ministry of Mount Perrin North in Marietta, Georgia. It is good to have you here. Uh, I'm especially excited about uh, our, our preacher, our minister tonight. He is a familiar face if you've been around here for maybe more than four or five years. Um, he is currently serving as the uh, Associate Professor of Old Testament and Christian Ministry. I looked that up today so I could get it all right. Uh, but I just know him as my friend. and He's a former pastor here. It is Dr. Justin Walker. Would you welcome him home to the Mount Perry North Stage? Hi, friends. How are we? Good. This is, this is home. Okay, so not just this place. This is, my, this is our church family. This is our church home. Not just this building, which I grew up in this building, so I know where all the places are to go if you're trying to hide illicit things. But uh, So it's not just this space, but this night, Wednesday night is my home. So um, I feel like we should all be in the chapel together, bring back the gold chandeliers for just a second, right? <laughs> And uh, just rearrange the room so it's wide and we could have two mediocre songs and it would be great, right? And I'd just talk to myself for an hour. But um, it's so good to be back. It's so funny. I was thinking about those, those uh, Bible studies that we would have together in the Wednesday night gathering. And so many of those handouts have since become what I teach 18 to 22-year-olds on a regular basis. And so um, I'm so grateful to be home. I'm so good, so good to see all of you, the faithful remnant, right? The true Christians, all the others. You don't know if you're gonna see them in heaven, but look around. This is a foretaste, all right? So, um, but yeah, it's, it's so great to be home. And um, yeah, I'm grateful to Dr. Kirk for this, for this opportunity. Um, I'm, we just finished final exams yesterday. And so, yeah, applaud them, I guess. Uh, so I'm almost done too. And so when I got this invitation, I thought this is a perfect excuse to not grade, which is the worst thing about all teaching is, is grading. Uh, I wish Amanda and the kids could be with me. Kennedy and Judah are growing up. So it's been four years since we uh, went to the university to the Holy of Holies that is Cleveland, Tennessee. And um, it's been four years. So Kennedy is entering middle school in the fall. She's 11 years old and our son Judah is eight years old. So I know it's insane. So I'm not gonna preach tonight. You're just gonna intercede for me that I have a middle schooler in my house. So we're just gonna all come down front, lay hands. And um, we, need, we need your prayers. I wish they could be with us. They wanted to be with us, but tonight's school night and we had to sign a form from the government last week, which promised that we wouldn't miss any more school days. And I thought, I'm a taxpayer, right? I go to school. They go to school when I want them to go to school, all right? So anyways, they can't miss any more school, and here we are. But again, um, it's great, 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 great to see you, and we love you dearly. Um, so it's Easter tide. We're in the Easter season. Um, we're in Easter season until Pentecost Sunday, which is, I think, May the 28th in just a few weeks. And so given Easter tide, I figured we might look at a resurrection story together, um, but not in the New Testament. Who cares about the New Testament? Uh, but instead, one from the Old Testament together. Um, and of course, Mother's Day is 11 days away. So men just to put that on your radar. Um, but even so, uh, this, uh, a story of resurrection and a story of a loving mother. So if you have your Bibles, please open them uh, to 2 Kings chapter 4. 2 Kings 4, this is, 2 Kings is after, get this, 1 Kings. Um, it comes right before 1 Chronicles. But 2 Kings 4 is before us. Um, 
Okay, so it's a story that's predominantly about a single room. It's about this mother, of course, but about a room, especially. And there are a few things more revealing of who we are than the spaces that we live in. As long as this relationship is kept outside of our living spaces, we have a good chance at controlling the impression that we make of one another, right? So as long as you're not in my home, I can make you think some things about me. I can present myself as articulate and funny or smart or kind or even Christian, all kinds of things. But the second that you break the threshold of the door of someone's home, the relationship enters a whole new level, doesn't it? So there are a few things we can deny once people are in our homes. I would assume that your home is most clean when you know that people are coming over. Um, so are you also, have you ever had the, the panic moment when you realize that someone's about to be at the house in 10 minutes and they're showing up unannounced perhaps, and you've got to throw all the clothes that are in the living room into the closet somewhere, and then you have to light a candle to cover the smelly ape smell of the human being that you are, and you have to make sure the toilet water is clean. I always know people are coming over our house when the toilet water turns blue. That's what it's the prophetic sign. It's as sure as any other sign in my house, right? But these are the signs that company is coming over and you pray to God that when they walk in your house, they don't go into that closet or that room or up those stairs or into that basement or around the back of the house, right? Just trying to control the impression as much as you can. Our rooms say a lot about our identities. They say a lot about who we are. They tell stories too, don't they? We have stuff in our homes that's sentimental to us. But the second they walk in, I can't deny those family members anymore. There I am smiling in a picture beside them. I can't deny my interests, but they're a way ultimately of revealing our story. Some stuff we keep up because it means something to us. Some stuff we keep up because we're too lazy to take it down. Some of us took down Christmas last month, right? Which is... We have a counseling center available for you, if that's you, so we can help get your life back together. Um, but all that to say, we have stories to our rooms. If you'd have walked into my, what was your childhood room like? Can you imagine that space for a moment, that room for a moment? So I think about my childhood room. I had Star Wars posters on the walls and Power Rangers and Ninja Turtles and baseball participation trophies because I wasn't any good at baseball. Um, from the Mount Perrin Sports Complex. And then it became Xbox and musical instruments. And now my room is whatever my wife decides our room is. You know, I have no jurisdiction. I have no authority in my own house. Uh, but our rooms say a lot about who we are. And they're kind of these uh, sacred spaces, even within the home itself. And this story is about a very special room, a very particular room where life and death happens and then life again happens. And this is the story of the Shunammite woman. We're going to read a lot of Bible text because it's Wednesday night and you're the saints among the saints. So, and here we are. If I'm going to talk for the next few minutes, then let's get our bearings. Do you mind standing as you were able for the reading of the word of God today, this evening? Second Kings verse, chapter 4, starting in verse 8. Hold on, here we go. One day... Elisha went to Shunem, and a well-to-do woman was there who urged him to stay for a meal. So whenever he came by, he stopped there to eat. She said to her husband, I know that this man who often comes our way is a holy man of God. Let's make a small room on the roof and put in it a bed and a table, a chair and a lamp for him. Then he can stay there whenever he comes to us. One day when Elisha came, he went up to his room and lay down there. He said to his servant Gehazi, call the Shunammite. So he called her and she stood before him. Elisha said to him, tell her, you've gone to all this trouble for us. Now what can be done for you? 
can we speak on your behalf to the king or the commander of the army? She replied, I have a home among my own people. What can be done for her? Elisha asked. Gehazi said, she has no son and her husband is old. Then Elisha said, call her. So he called her. She stood in the doorway. About this time next year, Elisha said, you will hold a son in your arms. No, my Lord, she objected. Please, man of God, don't mislead your servant. But the woman became pregnant. And the next year, about that same time, she gave birth to a son, just as Elisha had told her. The child grew. And one day he went out to his father, who was with the reapers. He said to his father, my head, my head. His father told his servant, carry him to his mother. After the servant had lifted him up and carried him to his mother, the boy sat on her lap until noon, and then he died. She went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God, then shut the door and went out. She called her husband and said, please send me one of the servants and a donkey so I can go to the man of God quickly and return. Why go to him today, he asked. It's not the new moon or the Sabbath. That's all right, she said. She saddled the donkey and said to her servant, lead on, don't slow down for me unless I tell you. So she set out and came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. When he saw her in the distance, the man of God said to his servant Gehazi, look, there's the Shunammite. Run to meet her and ask her, are you all right? Is your husband all right? Is your child all right? Everything's all right, she said. When she reached the man of God at the mountain, she took hold of his feet. Gehazi came over to push her away, but the man of God said, leave her alone. She's in bitter distress, but the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me why. Did I ask you for a son, my Lord? She said, didn't I tell you don't raise my hopes? Elisha said to Gehazi, tuck your cloak into your belt, take my staff in your hand and run. Don't greet anyone you meet. And if anyone greets you, do not answer. Lay my staff on the boy's face. The child's mother said, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So he got up and followed her. Gehazi went on ahead and laid the staff on the boy's face, but there was no sound or response. So Gehazi went back to meet Elisha and told him, the boy is not awakened. When Elisha reached the house, there was the boy lying dead on his couch. He went in, shut the door on the two of them and prayed to the Lord. Then he got on the bed and lay on the boy, mouth to mouth, eyes to eyes, hands to hands. As he stretched himself out on him, the boy's body grew warm. Elisha turned away and walked back and forth in the room and then got on the bed and stretched out on him once more. The boy sneezed seven times and opened his eyes. Elisha summoned Gehazi and said, call the Shunammite. And he did. When she came, he said, take your son. She came in, fell at his feet and bowed to the ground. Then she took her son and went out. Can you say amen to the reading? God's word, amen. You may be seated. You may be seated. God, we ask that you would add your blessing to the word tonight. We gather to listen to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So in the early 1990s in Holland, Michigan, there was a church youth group that was seeking to memorize a very important phrase to them. And that phrase would eventually take the entire nation by storm. I would venture to say that that phrase is probably even represented in the room tonight. It got boiled down to four simple letters that were then placed upon a bracelet and then sold in every color that God has ever created, and then even more so. You have a guess of what those four letters are. What are they? WWJD, what would Jesus do? And of course, it became very popular and the paraphernalia is still found today. Well, tonight, I don't want to ask what would Jesus do? That's a fantastic question. It's a question about following the moral and godly example of Jesus Christ. But instead, we have before us a woman whose name we do not know. The scripture does not give us her name. Instead, we're just told that she's from Shunem the Shunammite woman. So tonight we're not going to ask what would Jesus do, WWJD. We're instead going to ask 
W-W-T-S-W-D. What would the Shunammite woman do? That's our question tonight. And it unfolds this story, just three simple points, and then um, we'll be done tonight. But th- I want to see, see the story in three moments, and all pertaining to this room or the idea of the room. And so the first point that we might see, the first moment is the moment of making room. Moment of making room. This is what the woman does. So Elisha, successor to Elijah. Elijah is a prophet to Israel, a kind of cowboy-like figure that comes from the Transjordan. No one knows his ancestry, but he's just there to be a thorn in the king's side as it pertains to the things of God. And after Elijah is caught up in the chariot, his successor is Elisha, who has a double portion of his anointing, which means he's going to perform twice as many miracles as Elijah does. Elisha frequents this town called Shunem. It's not outside of Israel. It's within the boundaries of Israel, just about 15 miles southwest of the Sea of Galilee. He goes there occasionally, and one time when he is there, there's a wealthy woman from Shunem, the Shunammite woman, and she's uh, kind of fascinated by this godly character, this prophetic man. And we're told that she urges him that he might come and eat within her home, because of course there are no Holiday Inn Expresses in this town. There's no hotel, so he's at the mercy of the town. She urges him. It's the word that means to overpower, in fact. So she kind of overpowers him. He doesn't have a choice. The prophet has to come to this house for a meal, a very kind woman. And she's so fascinated by this man that she proposes to her husband, as you saw in the story, and as we're going to talk about here in a minute, he's what we might call an idiot. But she proposes to him, She says, how about we build a room for him so that whenever he happens to be in town, he can stay with us. And this is no slapdash room. This is no spare bedroom that's got some extra furniture in it, but there's a bed and he can stay there. No, she builds him his very own room. And she's very intentional about decorating it. There's four pieces in that room, a bed, a chair, a table, a lampstand. You hear all that, that just sounds like a room. But if you're reading the Hebrew, those four words are the same words used to describe the furnishings of the tabernacle and the temple. This is not just a room, it's a holy place. It's a place for meeting with God. And of course, Elisha is grateful for this holy space. So he wants to pay her back. She has no interest, by the way, in doing this favor to get a favor back. She's just doing the godly, good, hospitable thing. But he says, no, 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 I need to do something for her. So he asks his servant Gehazi, whom we're gonna see here again is, an idiot. So he asks his servant, Gehazi, what can be done for her? Ask her, can I, I've got some pull with some important people. We could talk to the king, the commander. What do you need? And she says, I live among my own people. I'm just fine. Proving again, I'm not doing this for any ulterior motives. Gehazi finds out, however, she doesn't have a child. So Elisha says, okay, bring her in to see me. She comes in and he says, this time next year, you'll hold a son. And I love her response. Her response is not one of faith. It's not one of belief. It's not even one of laughter. It's one of distress. Please, please don't deceive me. I've gotten my hopes up before and I've been disappointed. Those are the last words we hear until the very next promise that indeed she does conceive and has a child. See, making room for God, this is a very dangerous task. If you give God an inch, he'll take a mile. And what begins as this kind of simple, innocent openness to the holy things and holy people and spirituality of God can quickly become a very inconvenient intrusion of a very inconvenient experience. And what is that experience? Well, there are a few things more inconvenient and terrifying than the experience of hope. Now, we think that despair 
Hopelessness is the ultimate enemy, but that's not the case because despair, at least, is predictable. It doesn't take a prophet to look on the horizon and expect disappointment. It doesn't take a genius to watch the evening news and to expect that bad news is on the horizon. Are you with me? Despair, skepticism, dread. This is our fundamental mode of being, and we like it because it keeps us in control. It protects us from the ultimate enemy or the ultimate fear, which is, of course, to get our hopes up and for those hopes to be disappointed. If you set the bar low, then you have nothing to worry about. Sometimes hope just isn't worth it, or so it seems. Yeah, 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 I believe in the resurrection. Uh Uh-huh, God's good, and he's with me all the time, and he'll never leave me nor forsake me. I got Hobby Lobby plaques that tell me that in my, here it is, room, right? So we know those promises, but they seem so far off or they seem so general and they seem so, I don't know, ill-suited to my personal circumstance. The Shunammite woman, she wasn't an idiot. She wasn't a fool. We can expect that she did her due diligence when it pertains to her suffering. We can expect she went to doctors and nurses, tried fertility treatments and all natural diets and prayers and fasting, and who knows the terrible theological explanations she got from people in her hometown. Well, maybe, maybe there's sin in your life, or maybe this is God trying to teach you something, or maybe you should try this Bible study plan, or have you tried saying this verse seven times out loud, or have you tried this essential oil? It always does the trick, doesn't it, the essential oils? If you just try that, then maybe God would give you what you want. But this woman, she wasn't a fool. She didn't play up her suffering. She didn't seek attention for it. She instead went to battle with infertility. She took it right on the chin and nevertheless built a beautiful life beyond it. She accepted it. This was her life and she wasn't going to complain about it anymore. No use in getting the hopes up. I think we're a lot like this ourselves. There's things in our life that we've come to terms with. Things we used to pray about all the time, things we used to sit in altars and cry about and shout at God about. But at some point, it just seems as though it's not going to happen for us. There used to be mountains that we would yell at in the name of Jesus, just staring at them, waiting for them to uproot themselves and cast themselves into the heart of the sea. And then we just got the echo of our own voice over and over again. So what did we do? We put on our backpack and we decided to climb the mountain or go around it because it's just easier to do that. We had sinful habits that we thought in the name of Jesus we could overcome and now it's just easier to manage them because God won't seem to take it away. I was at a church just a couple weeks ago. A young man came, it was like a Q&A kind of thing. He came to a microphone and he said, why won't God take away my temper? I just want to be faithful and he won't take it away. We have things that we carry that used to be heavy that are no longer heavy anymore because our legs have gotten stronger and we tell ourselves we need the exercise anyway. And so what do we do? We hope for smaller things now, like an afternoon nap. You know, isn't that a great hope? You wake up in the morning and the only thing keeping you going is the remembrance that you'll be back in that bed in just a few more hours. Smaller things like summer vacations or a Braves win tonight, maybe. Yeah, go Braves. They're playing right now, who knows? Or the small hope of an Amazon package on the way to your house. Now that's a good hope, isn't it? So the smaller hopes, and there's something noble about that kind of acceptance, isn't there? There's nothing wrong with accepting the hand that life has dealt us. And then God walks into the neighborhood. God's word shows up unannounced, unaffected, with no fanfare, no fireworks. God just walks in and we're curious. And so we make 
room, just as the woman does. She makes room for God, not to manipulate God, not to control God, but just to hear from the man of God's voice. And it just so happens that this room that she makes for God, because of this room, God makes room within her to carry the promise. Dear friends, be careful of the room that you make for God. Be careful of the conversations that you have with God. Be careful of the strangers that you welcome in his name. Be careful of the Bible studies you frequent. Be careful of the fasting and the praying and the prayer closets that you inhabit. Be careful of first Wednesday services just like this one. These are all rooms that you're making for God. And it just so happens that God's really good at getting our hopes up, not to disappoint them, but to fulfill them. God delights in filling the rooms that we build for God. Remember Abraham and Sarah? One afternoon, three strangers stopped by their house, right? And they happened to entertain them, to welcome them, to make room for them in their tent. And these three strangers are crazy enough to tell Abraham that his wife of 90 years old is going to have the promised child. She laughs, I would too, wouldn't you? Yeah. Or Israel, backside nowhere wilderness next to a fiery mountain builds a room for God. And that's the room that the glory of God's presence fills. Or the room that the disciples prepare for Jesus Christ for their last supper together. They don't know it's the last supper, but it's this room that they prepare where God's covenant is made with them in the blood and body of Jesus Christ. I also heard about this upper room once where they waited for 10 days in prayer and all of a sudden something like wind and fire and tongue talking happened. And rumors are that 3,000 were added to their number on that day. There was even a man named Joseph of Arimathea who made room for a failed and dead Messiah. A family tomb was that room. And I guess we all know what happened on the tail end of that room. Be careful of the room that you make for God. I'm asking you a question. I'm not asking you if you're a Christian. I'm not asking you if you're a follower of Jesus. I'm not asking you if you want to be a good person. I'm asking you, have you made room for God just simply to wait on him to show up in his timing unannounced, no fanfare, no fireworks, just to walk in and speak the hope you've always hoped him to speak, making room. If the story ended there, oh, we could all go home. It'd be a nice fairy tale ending. But that's not what happens. You just heard the story. After the child grows up, her greatest hopes realize she has everything she's ever wanted. One day, the child is out with the father in the fields. He grabs his head. He says, my head, my head, and he collapses, which is perhaps the sign of a, of a heat stroke working out in the fields with his father. And so his father tells the servant, take him to his mother, you know, like that fatherly love. And so <laughs> I don't have time for this. I got to go to the office. And so take him to his mother. And of course, it's there in her arms that the child of the promise dies. Why does this happen? And here's the thing. The story never tells us why this happens. I mean, we're used to miracle stories in the Bible. We know what they're like. 
problem presented to God or Jesus, same thing. Then Jesus solves the problem. And then at the end of it, you get some kind of moral lesson. Here's the lesson for the story. The lesson is go and sin no more. The lesson is this was for God's glory to be revealed. Whatever the case might be, there's always some kind of moral payoff at the end of the story, some kind of reason, but not here. The child just dies. And the narrator, the characters, not even Elisha tells us why. It would make more sense if it was all because the father was sinful or the child was sinful, or to reveal the power of the man of God himself, but none of it. Have you ever had suffering like that? It has no apparent reason, not even in the rearview mirror, providential apparent reason. It just kind of happens. When this suffering happens to us, we always want to ask why. Why is a good question, but I'm not sure that getting an answer why would even necessarily always help. Do you know the story of Job? that poor soul, right? He's one who is described as fearing God, turning from evil, righteous and upright. Uh, So he's the only person in scripture with those four descriptors. Not even Moses gets those four, right? So Job is perfect. He's OCD spirituality perfect because he offers sacrifices in case his kids have sinned against God in their hearts. Bless his heart. He'd be a good Pentecostal, wouldn't he? And so anybody say the sinner's prayer every night, just in case. You gotta renew that insurance every day. All right, so... So he was one who was OCD, spiritual, OCD, faithful. And nevertheless, the accuser stands before God and questions Job's piety. By the way, who's the one that brings up Job? It's not God. I mean, it's not the devil. It's God that brings up Job. And imagine, after Job has lost everything, you know the story, he loses all 10 children in the same day. Imagine, at the end of the story, instead of if you got the whirlwind, instead of getting God's great answer to Job, if you got instead God telling him the actual reason. Here, Job, take a seat. I made a bet with the devil. That's why you suffered. Do you think that helps at all? Of course not, right? So the why is perhaps never the true answer that we're seeking. The scripture sympathizes with us and says, sometimes suffering's only explanation is its eradication. Sometimes it's not about searching for answers. It's about searching for solutions. And the Shunammite woman is one who gets stuff done. Yeah, the assertive one. Okay, so the story tells us that not all suffering perhaps is explainable. It's redeemable, but not explainable. And so what does she do? Well, the very first thing after her child dies is she takes it up and puts it where? In the very room that she had made for the man of God. What is this act? What is she doing here? Is this an act of worship, perhaps? This is the brilliance of the Hebrew story. You never get what the characters are thinking. You only get what they're doing. So you have to kind of read into their emotions as you wish, or read into their thinking as you wish. Lays the child down. Is this an act of worship? Is this an act of surrender? Or perhaps it's an act of protest, saying to God, God, I never asked for this child, and you and your infinite mercy gave me this child, and now that you've taken away It's your problem. Now, this is your problem to solve. I never asked for this dream, but now that I have this dream, I'm placing it back in your hands because it's your problem. Do something about it. And she shuts the door, yeah? But she's not just going to make room. She's also going to clear room. This is clearing room. This is the moment where she's going to make wide the path of God's word. So what does she do? She leaves the room. She comes downstairs, perhaps, 
and tells her husband, get me a servant and a donkey. I'm going to go see the man of God. What does her husband say? Well, honey, listen, it's not the new moon or the Sabbath because those are special days that you would go visit the prophet and the holy days, holy time, perhaps a greater chance of getting a miracle. But notice this response. This is like us having a medical emergency with our child. And my wife, Amanda, saying to me, we need to go to the doctor. And I'm saying, listen, babe, it's Saturday. They're not open. We're gonna have to wait until Monday, right? So I told you he was an idiot and he is an idiot. So you know what she says in response? He says, it's, the new, it's not the new moon, nor is it the Sabbath. You know what she says in response in Hebrew? Shalom, which means it's fine. <laughs> it's a way of saying, you're an idiot and I don't have to talk to you, right? I'm gonna go do something else. So the Shunammite woman is the patron saint of not having to talk to idiots. You know, I don't have to talk to you about this problem. I'm just gonna solve it myself. It's also a way of saying shalom is goodbye. I'm hitting the road, right? So she takes this servant and gets on the donkey. And now this is an 18 mile ride to Mount Carmel, 18 miles. So that's like, putting a donkey out front in the parking lot and you riding that donkey all the way to Canton, Georgia, right? So in a single day, talk about a desperate mama. We're not stopping for anyone. We're not stopping for snacks or gas. We're going, right? So after about six hours on donkey back, she makes her way to the man of God. And in the distance, Elisha sees her. He notices her, he recognizes her. And he says to Gehazi, his servant, he says, go ask her, how's she doing? How's her husband? How are things? And so when Gehazi goes and asks her, you know what she says? Shalom, it's fine. She's perhaps either trusting God, which I think is true, or maybe she's just doing that thing we all do when our lives are falling apart and someone says to you, how are you doing? And what do you say? I'm fine, right? Because the last thing I wanna do is talk to you about it. What are you going to do? for me, you know? So does anybody know what I'm talking about? It's just, it's just easier for me not to tell you. She's the patron saint of saying, it's fine. You have biblical precedent to say, it's fine when it's not fine. So I'm, I'm releasing you, right? So, all right, anyways, it's fine. Shalom, it's great. It's also kind of like, I'm not settling for second best here. I need to talk to the manager. You know, you ever call customer service and you're like, listen, I'm, I'm so thankful for you. I'm so grateful for you. But this is not an unplug it, plug it back in kind of thing. I just need to talk to whoever is in charge of you, you know, because you're not gonna get it done for me. So this is that. Like, I'm just not, we're not gonna talk. We're just, don't worry, it's fine. Everything's fine. So when she gets to the man of God, however, what does she do? Immediately breaks down, falls at his feet. She takes hold of his feet. This is the same word used to describe the way that she urged him to be in her home earlier in the story. Now she's urging him to help her. She's weeping and she's crying. And what does Gehazi do? Remember, he's an idiot too. What does he do? He tries to separate her from the prophet. Because oftentimes we church folk are uncomfortable with pain and we would rather anesthetize it than listen to it. We would rather get it away from us than hear it out. But Elisha, the man of God, the representative of God's word, embraces the pain and hears her. Elisha doesn't know why she's suffering. And it's in that moment, she protests. And she said, did I ask you for a son? She said, didn't I tell you, don't get my hopes up. You feel the pain of that. Saying to God, I asked you not to get my hopes up and you got my hopes up anyway. So 
Elisha's overcome with emotion and compassion, he sends his servant, which is a perfectly, perfectly acceptable prophetic thing to do. Gehazi, take my staff, put it on the kid's face. I don't know why, but I guess it'll work. Maybe it'll work, right? But the woman won't settle for second best. And so what does she say to Elisha? She says, I swear to God, I'm not leaving you. You can't shake me. She says, as the Lord lives. That's like saying, I swear to God. I swear to God, I'm not leaving you. Now, this is interesting because we're told in the story not that he follows her home. I mean, not that she follows him home, but rather that he follows her home. She shows us what making room for the word of God looks like. It looks like taking so taking hold of God so tightly and saying to him, I'm not letting you go until you bless me. I'm not letting you go until you walk into the dead and broken dreams of my life and you fix them. I'm not, you can't shake me. And God sometimes isn't just one who asks us to follow him, but in his great compassion, sometimes he's one who's willing to follow us to the broken messes of our lives. Sometimes God is one who's saying, I'm waiting on you to show me the mess. God likes wrestling partners. God likes people who won't let go. God likes stubborn people. This is odd for us to hear because we always told thy kingdom come, thy will be done. I surrender and that's all true and that's all good. But God also likes us to wrestle back. You know why? When we take hold of God, we look most like God who of course has a death grip on us too. I'm not letting you go till you walk back into the broken dreams of my life and you speak life into them. Jesus tells the story of a judge who didn't fear God and didn't like people. And there was a widow who showed up every day and drove him crazy. He said, just to get her off my back, I don't like God and I don't like people, but just to get her off my back, I'll tell her yes. And Jesus says, if an unjust judge is willing to grant justice to the persistent widow, then what of the judge of the universe? But then he asks this, when the son of man comes, will he find faith on the earth? And faith is saying, I'm not letting you go. I swear to God and I swear on my life and yours, I'm not letting go until you walk into that room that I've made for you. Clearing, uh, making room, clearing room. And then third and finally, leaving room, leaving room. All right, well, what happens? Gehazi shows up, puts the staff on the boy's face. What happens? No response, no sound. Now that's key because those two phrases are used also to describe none other than Baal. Remember the false god Baal? Remember when the prophets of Baal cry out to Baal and they're praying, please Baal, answer our prayers. Baal gives no response and no sound. And so also the imitation, the counterfeit, the second best, it's not gonna do. So Elisha knows it's his turn. So what does he do? He goes into the room alone. And this is key. God has things that only God can do in the private places of God's world. I can do everything I can to clear the path for God's word to speak, but I can't make God's word arrive. 
and I also can't do God's work for God. And so I have to leave room. Once I've cleared room, I've got to leave room for God to work. So he goes in the room by himself and he shuts the door and here we go. He puts his eyes on the kid's eyes, his mouth on the kid's mouth and his hands on the kid's hands. What is this? I don't know. It's not a model for children's ministry. I'll tell you that, right? So it's, just, it's, a, it's a problem is what it is. Now, I don't know what's going on in this moment. I do know perhaps this is, well, this isn't perhaps. Elijah does this earlier in his ministry. Elisha has to do it twice though. So he lays out upon the boy, nothing, the, body's, the, the body begins to grow warm and then he paces the room and prays. And then he goes back and does the same thing. I don't know what it all means, but I think the fact that we're scandalized by this moment shows us how broken we are and how abusive human touch can often be in our world. Because this is not an abusive touch. This is not a sexual touch. This is not a touch that's in any way violating or harming. This is the touch of God. It shows that God is not afraid of our messes, that God is not threatened by them. God is not in some way offended by our death, but gets as close to it as possible. Eyes on eyes, mouth on mouth, hands on hands. And after seven sneezes, the boy wakes up and the unthinkable happens. And he hands the child that the mother never knew that she could ever have back into her arms. There's a story of women visiting another room, a tomb given by Joseph of Arimathea. And in that room, no one else is in that room, just the dead body of a failed Messiah. And the spirit of God and fills that body and resurrects it and with him resurrects all of us. And the story invites us to leave room for God that even and especially when we go back to the dust, which all of us will do at some point, when we go back to the dust, be sure, dear friends, to leave room for God even there. Because we have the promise that in God's timing, that as we've cleared room for God and God's perfect will at the end of all things, as we lie in the dust, Jesus, the resurrected Christ, will place his eyes filled with compassion and mercy on our dead and lifeless eyes. And he'll place his mouth filled with the word of God, of grace and truth upon our dead and lifeless mouths. And he'll place his nail scarred hands that perform the wonders of God and heal the world on our dead and lifeless hands. And we'll hiccup and shiver and sneeze seven times and we'll be awake with him in his father's house where I'm told there are indeed many rooms there too. So that the rooms we have made for God become the rooms that he has made for us. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Be careful of the room that you make for God. God has a way of surprising us. And if you're in a room that's become a tomb, don't let him go until he blesses you. And to be assured that if he doesn't speak tonight, and if he doesn't speak tomorrow, and if he doesn't speak a decade from now, nevertheless, at the end of all things, the last word will indeed be the resurrecting word, where we shall inhabit the room with him for all eternity. Praise God. Amen.
Amen. Let's pray together. God, we make room for you tonight. How tragic it would be if you stopped by our neighborhood and we had no room for you. How tragic it would be if we didn't invite you into the spaces that we've prepared for you. Teach us to make room. God, for all my brothers and sisters who are living in tombs, rooms that were once filled with life, now filled with death, brokenness, darkness, I ask God that you would grant them the strength of the Shunammite woman, a stubbornness, a persistence, a hope, the ability to grasp you, to hold tightly to you and to not let you go, trusting it's not merely our grip of you that brings us close, but recognizing that you are always holding us. Give us your own stubborn, steadfast love back toward you. And God, today where things seem hopeless, we ask for the strength to believe and to trust that as we leave room for you, you will do what only you can do. Bring us back, make your eyes our eyes, your mouths, your mouth our mouths, your hands our hands. We look forward to the many rooms you have made for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Dr. Justin, thank you for making the drive down here and sharing God's word with us from 2 Kings chapter 4. Uh, did you enjoy it? Yeah. yeah, would you stand with me as we close? Hope to see you back this weekend at 9.45 or 11.15. Uh, bring somebody with you. Bring somebody with you this Sunday to hear the word of God from Pastor Kirk. And um, you have Justin's permission to follow in the footsteps of the patron saint of not talking to idiots. But I hope that you'll stick around and talk to each other uh, here tonight. We've got some time before our student ministries and children's ministry lets out. But of course, you're welcome to stay in our atrium and lobbies and just enjoy fellowship with one another uh, this evening. Allow me the privilege to bless you as we go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you, to be gracious unto you, and grant you peace in Jesus' name. Let's give a response. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. God, love you. God bless you, folks. Love you. Have a great weekend. and See you Sunday.